Father, Son, and Spirit. We're so grateful for your incredible and generous mercy that we've already experienced here this morning together. And we pray now that you would pour out your spirit upon the reading and the preaching of your word, that we would not just hear your word today, but that it would penetrate our hearts and that we would respond to it with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's so great to see you all here today. I'm Corey. And if you've been with us at all the last couple weeks, you'll know that we're in a sermon series that we're calling the Questions of Jesus. This epiphany and then moving into Lent this week, what we're trying to do is we're trying to take a look at Jesus through the questions of Jesus. Jesus loves people. He is deeply interested in people. He's deeply interested in you. And he showed that interest in people by literally asking hundreds of questions. And his questions opened the doors of people's hearts and opened them up to new things. And I'm just excited for you because, you know, you could be in a lot of different places right now. You, don't, you didn't have to be here this morning. Uh, I know some of y'all thought about not being here, but you're here anyway. Someone maybe made you be here. I don't know. Uh, but you could be having brunch. Uh, you could be at another church. But you're here. Why are you here? And I just want you to consider that it may be because Jesus is living and he wants to address you this morning. That he wants to speak directly to you, perhaps with this very question that he is asking in this text today. So we're going to look at a question that comes out of a story from John chapter 8. So if you want to turn there in your Bible or in your bulletin um, to John chapter 8. Now, if you are looking at a Bible or if you've ever read this story in a Bible before, you'll notice that there's these funny little brackets around the story. Have you noticed that? And there's a little footnote maybe in some of your Bibles that says this story did not appear in the earliest Greek manuscripts. Well, that's true. And basically what scholars unanimously believe essentially is that this story was probably not written by John. It may very well have been written by Luke. And we're just not sure where it should appear, in which gospel it should appear. But it's nearly, there's near unanimity that this is a legitimate gospel story an eyewitness account about Jesus, and it matches all that we know about Jesus and his teaching. So I'm not going to talk about that in this sermon, but if you want to talk about that later, I'm happy to talk to you, okay? So let's read the story from Luke, I mean from John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. See, I'm already confused. Verse 2, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? And here's our question. Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. 
Now go and leave your life of sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Now picture this scene, okay? It's early in the morning. Jesus is in the temple courts. Maybe the sun is just starting to rise over the temple. He's very popular at this point. Maybe, you know, maybe there's 100, 200 people surrounding him as he's teaching. And suddenly there's a great hustle and bustle in the back of the crowd. And in bursts the important people, the pastors, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law. And they are dragging along with them this woman. Maybe she's clinging around her some bed linens or something to cover herself. And, and they thrust her into the center of the circle. And there she is standing in front of Jesus. And to say, Jesus, this woman, we tr- caught her in the act of adultery. The law demands that she be stoned for such a sin. What do you say, teacher? Now, verse 6 is very clear that they are not actually interested here in justice. You see in verse 6 it says they put this question to Jesus because they're trying to trap him. The law did indeed say in, uh, let's see, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 10, that adulterers must be put to death. But what the law actually says, you can go back and look at this later if you're interested, that both the man and the woman were to be stoned. So, hey dudes, where's the man? If you caught this woman literally in the act of adultery, that means you caught the man too. But where is he? He does not appear to be in the picture. So what you can see, friends, is that these men are not interested in justice. What they're interested in is using this woman as a tool to manipulate her and her vulnerability through this situation in order to create an impossible situation for Jesus. That's what they're trying to do. And it is a pretty impossible situation. Just think about it. Jesus was growing in popularity. He was growing in popularity among, uh, let's, let's call them the, the hoi polloi, the, 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 the destitute, the common folks. He was growing in popularity among the most notorious sinners, the prostitutes, the pimps, the tax collectors, the outcasts, and the religious leaders hated him for this. They hated him for his lax morality. They hated him for his seemingly base standards, and they wanted to get this guy. And so they set up this seemingly impossible scenario. On the one hand, if he just sort of lets her go, as they suspect he will do, they let her off the hook, then they can expose him as a lawbreaker. You see that? They can uncover him as the, 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 the liberal fraud that they think he is and expose him and undercut his claim to be Messiah. So they got him on that hand. But on the other hand, if he upholds the law and says, right guys, you're correct. That's what the law of Moses says. Let's proceed with the stoning. If they say that, then they've also got him because his whole reputation and influence among the poor will be decimated. I mean, who wants a Messiah that says, come to me, all you sinners, and I will execute you. It's not a real good motto. It's not good marketing, right, for a Messiah. And, 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 so, and furthermore, At this point in the history of Israel, they're under the Roman rule. And so the only people who can actually oversee capital punishment is the Roman state. So if Jesus gives his imprimatur and he blesses this execution, then the Pharisees can bring him up on criminal charges with the Roman state. So they've got him. It it reminds me of um, that wonderful old uh, story about King Arthur. Do you all remember King Arthur and 
his lovely queen Genevieve, and his queen has an affair with his chief knight, Lancelot, and Lancelot manages to escape, but Genevieve is caught and brought up on trial, and she is condemned to death, and King Arthur must oversee and give the word for the execution of his own wife. And his nemesis, Mordred, taunts him. He says, Arthur, what a magnificent dilemma you are in. Let her die, your life is over. Let her live, your life's a fraud. What will it be, Arthur? Do you kill the queen or do you kill the law? And that's Jesus' dilemma. Do you kill the woman or do you kill the law? Now, just as an aside, that dilemma is a dilemma that societies and religions have been wrestling with for all ages, right? You got the dilemma between morality and mercy, between grace and righteousness. If you're over here on sort of the left, you know, and you got sort of a, you know, a bleeding heart and you're like, just kind of let, let the woman off the hook, you know, we're for grace, we're for tolerance, but in the process, you, you can excuse wrongdoing, you can relativize morality. But then you got the folks over here, kind of on the right, who call for high moral standards and for upholding of biblical values and righteousness, but in the process, you might crush people and there's no room for mercy. And so you've got compassion and mercy over here and you've got justice and morality on this side and clearly they are irreconcilable. There's no way through and so they think they have him. But they don't because he's Jesus. And Jesus, beautiful Jesus, glorious Jesus, wise Jesus, Jesus who is unsurpassable, Jesus who is incomprehensible, Jesus who, who oh, the only person who has ever lived who is able to perfectly reconcile mercy and justice and righteousness and compassion. The, the, these qualities are not in conflict in him. These qualities are not in irreconcilability in him. They are united in beautiful Jesus. Only him. And so what does he do? Verse 6, he, he gets down on the ground and he just starts to write on the dust with his finger. Now, what is Jesus doing? I have no idea. Um, no, nobody, nobody has any idea. <laughs> There's a lot of theories out there. One, I, I love this one. This is like an early second or third century commentator on the text. Writes that he thinks that Jesus is writing in the dirt all of the sins of the men standing in the circle, which is great, right? <laughs> it's probably not what's going on here. I think that what Jesus is doing is he is just ever so subversively drawing the attention of the accusing crowd away from the woman. He sees that she is shamed. To them, she is a thing. To them, she is a tool to be used. To Jesus, she is a person, a person that he loves, a person that he knows is guilty, but who he wants to see restored. And he so ever gently draws the attention of this accusing crowd off the woman and onto him. He's so brave, he's so strong, he's so unflappable. There he is just drawing in the dust as they hurl these questions at him. And then he stands up and he says in this most astonishing phrase, okay, proceed. Proceed with the stoning. And the person without sin, you go first. So he does the impossible. He does what no one thought was actually conceivable. 
to do. He, on the one hand, upholds the law. He upholds the Mosaic law. He says, yes, this is a sin, and it, there, is, there is justice required for sin, so proceed with what Moses required. Proceed with the stoning. And on the other hand, he suggests a procedure. He says the person who can do this without any partiality, the person who has a clear conscience, who has not sinned in the same way or some other, you go ahead. You go first. And he bends back on the ground, and he starts to write again. And you can just hear the silence. You, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can hear the, a, a pin drop. You can, you can hear the, the scalpel entering into the hearts of these men. You can hear it slicing open. You can see them recognizing their hypocrisy, seeing their complicity, seeing that they have themselves broken the law by dragging this woman in without the man. And one by one, beginning with the oldest, which says something about what age does for your own self-awareness, beginning with the oldest, they begin to drop their stones and slink away. And Jesus just stands up. Woman. Can you just see him with like a little smirk on his face, feigning ignorance? Where are they? What happened to your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No, Lord, she says. Neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. This is so beautiful. This, this, this person. You know, I'm going to apply this in a second. But if you just get one thing out of this sermon, would you just look at this person? Would you look at this Jesus? This is, this is, a, this is an impossibly beautiful person. I, I, love, I love the story about Tom Torrance, who was a chaplain. He was a scholar, but a chaplain in World War II. And one time he, was, he ran up to a young, a young 20-year-old man who was dying of gunshot wounds. He was cradling this young man in his arms. And the guy looked up at him and he said, Father, is God really like Jesus? And Torrance looked down at him and said, he is. There's no other God but the one we see in Jesus. And I, th- I think, I'm guessing some of you need to hear that. Because some of you, you like Jesus, but you, you sort of wrestle with the idea of God, you sort of think that, you know, the real God sort of looks at you with sort of this pinched, angry, frustrated, disappointed look on his face. But there is no God behind the back of Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God. When you see the Son acting in the power of the Spirit, you see the Father. And so this is the God that you want. This is the God that you want to believe in. He's right there, Jesus. What do we do with this story? I just want to apply it in two simple ways. First is this. With Jesus, you are never condemned. This is a very popular story in uh, sort of our Western, tolerant, morally relativistic society because it appears to be that Jesus is sort of overlooking sin, excusing it, saying, eh, no big deal. And we like that, right? But that's not what's going on here. Note that Jesus does not tell this woman she is not guilty. He tells her that she is indeed guilty, but she is forgiven. And that's a very different message. Have you all ever read um, The Trial by Franz Kafka? Anybody ever read that? You know, I read it my senior year in high school. Kafka, I recommend it. Kafka was an early 20th century Jewish existentialist. 
And um, he wrote this fascinating novel called um, The Trial. And Joseph K. wakes up on his 30th birthday, and he's under arrest. And he's under house arrest. He's on probation awaiting his trial. But here's the thing. He's never told his crime. He's never told why he's arrested. And at first, he thinks that it's some mistake. He's saying, oh, I'm a good guy. There must be some mistake here in the system. But the trial drags on, and it goes on and on and on. He's left in the dark. He's never told his crime. And soon, he becomes paranoid. He's thinking, oh, my gosh, I did do that thing once. And I did cut that corner once, and I did lie to that person once, and I did cheat on my taxes that one time. And he starts getting paranoid. He starts, he starts being overwhelmed with this sense of condemnation that he is under this trial, and he doesn't know why. And it's a, it, 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 I won't give away the ending, but he dies, and which, which I know I've sort of given away the ending, but he, he's actually murdered. He, he's, his, the, the form of his death is what is so astonishing, so I would just commend the novel to you. But here's why Kafka wrote it. He wrote it as a parable for our modern age. He wrote once in his journal, the problem with us in the modern age is that we have expunged from our worldview the concept of guilt, yet we still all feel like desperate sinners. So all your life, you, you know, you're raised and, and everyone's telling you, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, you're great, you're wonderful, you can do anything, you're so awesome just the way you are. We're told that all of our lives, and yet deep down, we all feel like we're in a trial. And this bar of condemnation hangs over us. And sometimes we don't, we don't even know why. And, and Kafka can't really explain it. Paul does in Romans 2. He says, even if you're not religious, and even if you don't know the Jewish law, he says the law is still deep in our hearts, and we carry around in us, and it is accusing us all of the time, bringing us under condemnation. We all know deep down that we're guilty. Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, one time he played a practical joke on his friends. He took 12 of his friends, and he sent each of them an identical t- telegram, four words, flee, all is revealed. And within 24 hours, 10 of them had fled the country. (laughs) Just think about that. Next morning, you open your inbox, it says, you better run, I know everything. I see, now you're not laughing, right? (laughs) Because it's scary, because we know all deep down that we're on trial. You face accusers every day. And for some of you, the trial is very close to the surface. Because you're a perfectionist, and you have very high standards for yourself. Maybe you're like a one on the Enneagram, or you're a perfectionist, or whatever language you want to use. You have very high standards for yourself. You're a workaholic, you're a perfectionist, and all the time, that trial is right under the surface of your life. You're very sensitive to criticism. You're very defensive. You feel it all the time. Others of you, you can act the part, but the trial's still there. The voices, the accusers, they're still there. They're just deeper down, like this sort of subterranean oil leak. The voices of your mother, the voices of your boss, the voices of your spouse, the voices of your, your, your own ambition always pushing you harder, the voices of your own conscience that desperately does not want that dark thing in your life to be revealed. We are all walking around feeling like we're in the trial. And the question is, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? And the therapist may tell you, Uh, You're not guilty, and you are not condemned. So just accept yourself and be who you are. The problem with that is, like Kafka said, you remove guilt, you still got the shame, and then it's even worse because you don't know the source of your shame. (laughs) So that actually doesn't work. 
Religion says uh, you're guilty and you are condemned, so therefore clean up your life, pull your act together, and work real hard. But that doesn't work either because guess what? You become like these Pharisees who become hypocrites and self-righteous and who deep down know they're lawbreakers. So what do you do with your guilt? Well, look at Jesus. This, this, friends, this is the heart of the gospel. Please hear me on this. This is why Jesus is unlike any religion, any worldview, any philosophy, anything else in the world, because what he says to this woman and he says to us is you are guilty and you are not condemned. You are guilty. You are a sinner. You have broken the law. And yet, with me, you are not condemned. Jesus scatters the witnesses. He silences the accusers. He's standing there by himself with you saying, you are not condemned. You are free. Good news. You are worse than you thought. You can come clean about that, but you are loved and forgiven in me. And that's what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is not to be a good person, but to admit that you're not, and that you're guilty, but that you are far more forgiven and extravagantly loved than you ever thought possible. And now you can walk around in your life, and all these voices are accusing you all these times, all the time, and they're all encircling you, and you can just turn around and see Jesus scattering them, saying to you, you are not condemned. You're forgiven, you are loved, you are free. And growing as a Christian means that you allow the voice of Jesus to become louder and louder and louder as all those other voices become quieter and softer until they've all walked away. Isn't that beautiful? So Jesus, you're never condemned. But the other thing I think we can learn from this story is this, is that with Jesus, when you're with Jesus, you can't actually then condemn others. We live in a weird society, a crazy world we live in. I don't know if you'll notice this, but we, so on the one hand, our culture is deeply relativist in many ways, sort of discarded the idea of absolute morality. But on the other hand, our culture is awash with rampant moral outrage. Have y'all noticed that? It's like condemnation is almost now, it's almost like you have to be fluent in the language of condemnation to appear on like CNN or Fox News or something like you know, and so you got one side condemning the other as lazy and immoral and socialist and un-American, and then you've got the other side accusing the other as, you know, uh, homophobic and authoritarian and bigoted and, you know, all that. And, and condemnation is now the medium through which our cultural divisions are reinforced. And let's be clear, none of these people are actually pursuing justice, right? No one having a rage fest on Twitter is seeking real shalom, right? It is a sick catharsis, sick, in which we can condemn others all the while feeling better about ourselves. And what we see in this story is the most dangerous form of this within conservative religious communities. And I want us to pay attention to this third church because, because this shows what happens when a community cares deeply about the Bible, deeply about high moral virtues in the law, but loses the gospel. And we don't want that to happen to us. Look what happens. They, they put someone in the center, a common enemy, the sinner, the adulterer. For them, it was the tax collector, the prostitute. Really, you could substitute anything. You could put there in the center the liberals, you know, Planned Parenthood, the media, Hollywood elite. Just put them in the center. Circle up around them. And then you, you, you say, what's wrong with the world? They are. 
And often this is done in the name of biblical fidelity, high moral standards, and concern about God and his word. Then look at Jesus. Look what Jesus says to the woman. He says these two things. I do not condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. It is absolutely essential that you understand the right order of these sentences. <laughs> Reverse the order of these sentences, you lose Christianity. You lose Jesus. You lose the gospel. Religion says, leave your life of sin and you're not condemned. Jesus says the opposite. I do not condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. With Jesus, grace always precedes the law. With Jesus, mercy always comes before the command. With Jesus, kindness always comes before repentance. This is the way Jesus works. And if we're going to be people of Jesus, we got to be like that too. In my 18 years of pastoral ministry, I have never once seen any person fall in love with Jesus because a Christian was criticizing them about their morality. Not a once. In my old church, one day I was preparing a sermon, getting ready for the service, and a, and a woman from the church burst in, and she said, Pastor, you're not going to believe it. You're never going to believe what, the, what happened and what was revealed about our friend Linda. I've changed her name. Linda. Linda was a woman who was in our church. She was a key leader. She was a part of our community for a long time. And she says, it's just been, we just found out that Linda has been living a lie. She is an addict. And she's been lying to us for all these years. She's been stealing from us to feed her addiction. What are you going to do, pastor? She said. What are you going to do? She's out there in the church right now, pastor. Are you going to go talk to her? I said, yes, yes, I am. Just give me a second. <laughs> so I sat there, just, you know, what am I going to say? How many, I need to confront this woman. I need to know the right thing to say. So I gear myself up. I get up from my desk. I walk into the church. And there I see Linda. And, and I also see around Linda four or five women just encircling her. And I see them holding her. And I see uh, Linda weeping. And I see... Um, these women then moving and carrying her into a rehab program. And I see them walking with her through two years of rehabilitation. And I see them showing up over and over and over and over again for Linda when she backtracked or she backslid. I, and then, you know what? I see, I've, it's the most, one of the most transformative things I've ever seen. Now Linda is down in the East End running a Narcotics Anonymous program. And there's many other women that she has helped be delivered from that same addiction. In the moment of her exposure, no condemnation. No condemnation. Now leave your life of sin. Friends, if we're going to be a community that centers on Jesus, then we've got to be a community that loves like Jesus. Jesus was, in the words of my mentor, John Stott, a radical conservative he was deeply conservative about the Bible and upholding the words of God. And at the same time, he was profoundly radical about the love of God for sinners. So much so that the religious were extremely uncomfortable with him. So in the end, it must be true that the more conservative we become about our beliefs in the Bible, the more truly we believe every word of it, the more radical and liberal our loving should be. Generous, pouring out of the heart for sinners. So look at your life. Do you, do you love like Jesus? Uh, one way you know is you, you should look at your friends. Um, if if uh, sketchy people really like you 
uh, and people who don't abide by traditional family values and uh, who don't like religion and are suspicious of the, of, of, of the church, if those people really, really like you, then you're becoming more like Jesus. You have the spirit of Jesus in you. You smell like grace. So, centered on Jesus, we are not condemned, and we are those who do not condemn. We, we might convict, we might challenge, we might call each other out, but we never condemn, because Jesus has never condemned us. So friends, as we come to this table, we come boldly, boldly, as guilty sinners. Before God, we are exposed sinners that we are. We are caught in the act like this woman. We are addicts, addicted to approval and success, addicted to power and money, addicted to comfort and greed and ambition. And Jesus sees through our self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And yet he says to us, you are guilty and I do not condemn you. You are loved. The only reason why Jesus can say this to this woman and he can say this to us is because Jesus has accepted the condemnation of God on our behalf. And in the old um, movie, uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told, that used to come on like CBS or ABC when I was a kid about Jesus, not a very good movie, but um, I did love the way they portrayed this story. Um, If you remember, uh, Jesus, as he's talking to the Pharisees and he's just charged up, he picks up a stone. And he says, you who without sin, let them cast the first stone. And as he did it, he cast it to his feet. And a friend of mine said, you know, I don't know if the movie people meant to do this, but he took that stone and he cast it at himself. He cast it down into his own soul. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. At this table, we celebrate It sounds strange. We celebrate the condemnation of Jesus. We celebrate him picking up the the full cup of the wrath of God for sin and drinking it dry so there's not a drop in it left for you. The only thing left is grace. And so, friends, let's come to this table and celebrate that Jesus, the great judge, was judged in our place. He stood in the center of that circle and took the stones so that not a pebble was left for you or for her. So let's receive the grace of Jesus for us, get full on it, so that we can then become people who smell like Jesus and who extend the grace of Jesus to the world. Let's pray together. We do thank you, Father, that Jesus came in the power of the Spirit to set us free from sin and death and help us now to experience the grace of Jesus as we come to this table. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's join our voices to affirm what we believe. So would you stand as we say together the words of the creed? Church, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Um, the way that we'll take communion together this morning is after we're, we're prepared here, uh, we'll invite you to come forward and there will be a station to my right and left and you can rip a piece of bread from the loaf and dip it in the cup. And there's also individual pieces of bread and cups and gluten-free wafers if you need them, if you need to come to the table and you all on the balcony have a station up there. You know, it is flu season, so we want to be careful and thoughtful about that. So we do have these um, um, hand sanitizer things over here. I'm pretty sure they, the, the, this was part of the liturgy in the early church as well, the, pump, the hand pumping. Um, and so, you know, please generously use that as you come to receive. And if, you're not, if, you, if you don't want to receive, you can also just get an individual cup here at the table. Um, LJ is going to lead us as we move into the Lord's Supper. You can find the words on page 10 or on the screen. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. Holy and merciful God, our Father, you have made us in your image and for yourself. You have made this good world for us to tend and to enjoy. God, our Father. Hear the praise of grateful hearts. You sought your ancient people when they strayed from you. You freed them from the oppressor and brought them home. God, our Father. Hear the praise of grateful hearts. You have sent your Son to bring us home to you by his incarnation. You have found us. By his death. You have forgiven us. By his resurrection. You have freed us. God, our Father. Hear the praise of grateful hearts. In union with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our great high priest, and with all who worship you, both in heaven and on earth, we offer you our praise, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Friends, listen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after the supper, he took the cup and he poured it out, saying, this is my blood that is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so now, whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we are proclaiming the death, the condemnation of our risen Lord until he comes again for us. Let's pray. Holy and merciful God, our Father, send down your spirit on our bread and wine that they may be for us the body and blood of Christ and on your people that we may be the body of Christ reconciled to you and to each other by his blood. By your spirit, make us one, one with Christ, Christ one, one with each, each other, other, and one in mission to all the world until Christ shall come in final victory and we feast together in the kingdom at his heavenly banquet. So we cry, Maranatha. Even, Even so, so come, come, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus come. Come. If you're not a Christian today or you're not sure you are, um, there's a few things you can do. You can use the prayers on page 12. Um, you could come up if you wanted and just put your arms over your chest like this and, and the server will pray for you. You can also become a Christian today. 
Um, there's a simple prayer that you can use on page 12. I hope that you heard me, what I said, um, that if there's anything in your life you're feeling like, well, I just need to get this together. I just need to clean up this. I just need to get this handled in my life. There's, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm hiding. Friends, listen. You do not bring your goodness to this table. You bring your guilt. You bring your sin. You bring your need. All you need is nothing. The Savior is here who's received condemnation for you. If you reject his grace, his unquenchable grace, then you don't understand the kind of Savior that he is. All you need is nothing. Bring your need. Bring your need today. All right. Let's come and receive the Lord's grace.